world's not as simple as it used to be. It's not enough to be a good guy anymore. We have to be the best. The time has come. All will be accounted for. Or we will hunt them. Stand up! It's time to be the heroes we were always meant to be! So, so Aldo, I... Yes, John? What's wrong with Zorro, man? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So Zorro... (laughs) Hold on, I... I took a bite out of this food, knowing full well I shouldn't have. So give me a chance to swallow this whole. <laughs> I'm guessing the uh, you know Disney cereal from back in the day isn't exactly the most historically accurate or culturally sensitive. Just guessing, but um, no. Okay, so so okay. My problem with Zoro comes from a very specific incarnation of Zoro. Which is also my favorite version of Zoro. It is the one with Tony Flags. <laughs> That's all I'm gonna call him from now on. That's fantastic. <laughs> Tony Flags. Is that what Antonio Banderas means? Yeah. Anthony, yeah, Anthony Flags. <laughs> no. Banderas. <laughs> yeah. That's a, my my uh, van is named Vantonio. Banderas. Uh, he's, he's a very good-looking, very talented uh, Spanish actor who portrayed a Mexican folk hero in a film. That's it, in a film. <laughs> in a film. In a film where his predecessor is played by a white man who is also playing a Mexican folk hero. Because remember, it is Anthony Hopkins passing down the, the mantle of Zorro. So, out of two Zorros in one whole movie, neither of them is Mexican. And yeah, that, that's, this is a recent development for me, because I grew up thinking, because of that movie, and because of movies like, uh, I don't know, Desperado, <laughs> Yeah, I grew up believing Tony Flaggs was Mexican. Only to realize that he is the colonizer. Shoot, I'm really trying here. I'm looking and I'm looking and I'm looking. But yeah, um, he was in Spain for a while. It's not like he was born in Spain and very quickly, you know, moved over here. Oh boy. Yeah, no, but he has that spicy. He he has that spicy accent that you know Americans love. See, si. funny enough, I used to think again because I associated Tony uh, Banderas with uh, being Mexican, wrongfully so. I actually thought for a long time that Puss in Boots was a Mexican like folk legend type thing. It's Italian. Huh. The, Puss, the original Puss in Boots story and poem or whatever you want to call it is from Italy. I would not have guessed that. I would have sworn it was like Spanish at the very least. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, I knew it was like European, but I didn't know. Yeah. Well... There you go. If it helps, if it helps, um, Daniel Day-Lewis, who I believe is from Ireland or Northern Ireland, played Lincoln mm-hmm. in, you know, Lincoln. Why, why would... Who cares? Okay, if it was... I mean, if he, if, he had, <laughs> if he had played... Like, it might be more apropos if he played, like, George Washington during the Revolution or something. You know, the the 
Nope, still a colonizer. All right, all right, fine. All right, I'm gonna back away. I'm gonna back away. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna bail out of this. Oh no, this parachute's a knapsack. Ah. <laughs> yeah. So this is this has been a revelation I've had to deal with for probably about the last five six years of my life, and just coming to terms that Antonio Banderas is Spanish and not doesn't just speak Spanish. <laughs> he is a Spanish. <sighs> Lo siento, amigo. Um, sorry, Daniel Day Lewis was born in Greenwich. London, so sorry. Oh, I thought he was from is Ireland it, for some reason. The more you know. Okay, uh, he's from Malaga. Malaga want to talk about comic books. <coughs> Did that work? Was that a segue? Did I segue good? Until you segue called it out. Know. This is the Superhuman Registration Podcast where Malaga. No, stop. Comic books. I thought it was Malaga. Malaga comic they? books a lot. <laughs> My name is Steven, and we've got John and Aldo on the call as well. Afternoon, fellas. Evening, yeah. fellas. Whatever time it is. How yeah. you doing? It's, it's, we're in the same time zone. Uh, Are we? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there, was a, there was, you know, a good Steven, chunk of we're episodes. Recording, we're recording the studio together right now. I see Chuck Sprightly looking at us. From the He's shaking group. his head real he hard. He always glares through that, that glass. I have to duck below the frosted part. You know, it's that cool <laughs> glass where the bottom half is frosted. I am so tired, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> of Chuck Sprightly? Me too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we're here to talk about Spider-Man. A lot of Spider-Man. Malaga Spider-Man. You never have too much Spider-Man. I don't know what you're talking about. I said a lot. I didn't say it was too much. Oh, okay. Okay. It's, in my opinion, it's really hard to have too much Spider-Man. You can. You can certainly it overdose is on Spider-Man. It is doable. Yeah. Mm. Today is not that day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so we got a couple of, of fun, fun Spider-Man stories to read and talk about. Um, fun is maybe overselling it, especially the double fun, because, woof, one of these stories especially is quite the downer. Yeah. True. Do we want to take the Ghibli approach, or do we want to take what actually happened to the Ghibli approach? Um, what? Yeah, can you explain the Ghibli approach? Not for me, oh. I totally follow what you're, do- you're talking about, uh, but, okay. but some other Sup- people, uh, yeah. Okay, super quick, super quick story. When they initially launched, when when Ghibli decided to finally like release their two big films by their two big directors, Isao Takahara and uh, Hayao Miyazaki, they did a double feature of Grave of the Fireflies and My Neighbor Totoro with the full intent and instructions to the theater to play Grave of the Fireflies first because it is an incredibly sad and some would say traumatizing film. And follow it up with a slightly more cheerful and more like forgiving film of my neighbor Totoro. And to like cheer up and have kids go home happy. Even though I highly doubt children can stay still for an hour and a half in a movie theater to put up with two movies. But whatever. That was the intent. And a lot of theaters did not get the memo or did not get the memo correctly or just did not care and played Totoro first. So a lot of parents were just like, oh... This is the sad movie? Well, I guess it is, right? The mom's in the hospital. This movie must be the sad movie. Grandpa the Fireflies. <laughs> weird title to cheer us up. Nope. <laughs> uh, 
Oh no. <laughs> yeah. So then you just had a bunch of parents and children go home very sad after having to witness <laughs> the after having had their dinner after their dessert. So you're saying we talk about so, the death of Peter Parker before we talk about Miles Morales. Yeah. Death of Spider Man. Death is Yeah, I read the same book as you, I know. <laughs> is it is it uh, Peter Parker on the train? I I do not know. I'm just in a cold sweat now thinking I read the entire wrong thing. <laughs> no. Like, no, oh boy, I, I should hope the synopsis is, uh, matches up with what I read. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna just breeze over synopsis and uh double check my notes here. <laughs> Why don't we start with the death of ultimate spider parker Peter Man? Oh no, I did read the wrong one. <laughs> Oh, no. Is that the full title, Stephen? Oh, no. No, I read the right one, but Stephen said some nonsense. So if that's the right title, I definitely read the wrong one. <laughs> okay. All right. Jeez. So I guess I'll, I'll go ahead and do the synopsis then. That's my job. So we read the death of Spider-Man from the Ultimate Comics Spider-Man. So Ultimate Spider-Man issues 156 through 160 and this was done by this was written by brian michael bendis pencils by mark bagley inks by andy lanning colors by justin poncer letters by Corey pettit so this takes place uh i mean the title should be pretty self-explanatory this takes place at the end of spider-man's career in the ultimate comics uh, this would be right before they would transition and introduce Miles Morales into the Ultimates universe. This also comes right after a very impressive and at the time record-setting run for having the same writer or artist on one comic. Oh, so I, I think specifically not like just one comic because that's been done I think before, but. Specifically for like one character like this type of project where like you constantly switch them out. So it was some sort of record. I can't remember the specifics and I did not bother to look it up. Anyways, so for the actual story of the comic, at this point in his career, Spider-Man has had like several interactions and kind of team ups with a lot of members of S.H.I.E.L.D., X-Men and so on and so forth. And at this point, he's kind of an unofficial Avenger. He's been brought in, or an ultimate, I'm not 100% sure. And he's been brought in by Nick Fury, who thinks he has what it takes. Our least favorite version of Captain America is here to train him. And again, being our least favorite version of Captain America, doesn't think he's quite up to snuff and very dismissive and talks down to Spider-Man quite a bit, telling him that he's... I don't think you have what it takes. Knowing absolutely nothing of like what he's done, which is, I don't know, very Ultimates Captain America, but whatever. And so they are in the middle of like this little training thing because he does like this um, Remember the Titans crap where he takes Peter Parker to, or, or Spider-Man to a graveyard and tells him a story and so on and so forth. Captain America is kind of called away for a mission. I... Don't think it's Ultimatum. It's a different event that's happening across the Ultimate stuff. And I so, do think it's Ultimatum. Is it Ultimatum? Probably, right? I think I do believe it's Ultimatum, yes. Yeah, so Ultimatum is happening, and Ultimatum is terrible, just like Captain America here. And they're 
So there's a lot of heroes that are fighting each other, a lot of villains that are kind of also thrown into the mix. I think a lot of this has to do with, like, Magneto creating earthquakes and such. So, like, a lot of that stuff is going on. And so, why in the chaos of Ultimatum, what is essentially the Sinister Six, or like the ultimate Sinister Six, escape from prison during this whole thing, and they've decided, or Norman Osborn has decided that it is time for all of them to team up um, and because they owe him because he got them all out to go fight to finally go kill spider-man and so while this is happening peter parker is kind of on his way home and his spider sense kicks in and he sees that the punisher or i don't think he sees that specifically the punisher but he senses that somebody's about to shoot captain america so he saves him and takes a bullet for him kind of near like his abdomen, right? Like his lower abdomen. And he kind of gets like a clean shot through him. Saves Captain America, but everybody has to leave to go deal with Ultimatum. And I think they believe that at that point that Spider-Man is dead. So they just kind of like, okay, well, we'll, we'll come back for the body later, I guess. We got to go make more bodies. So... He hears about this prison outbreak that's happened with the Sinister Six. He gets a call from Mary Jane. So he heads home and tells Aunt May and Gwen Stacy, I believe, is the one who's staying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And tells him to leave. To leave and don't come back until like everything's come to past. And they send out a text because at this point in the comics, the Parker home is also kind of like a like a home for a lot of these young teen heroes who have kind of been kicked out. The two big ones in this case are Iceman and Johnny Storm, uh, the Human Torch. The Iceman is a mutant, obviously, but Johnny Storm believes, I think at this point in the comic, still believes that he is a mutant. Or at least the Fantastic Four are seen as mutant-like, so they're not 100% like those super popular people in the Ultimates that they are in the 616. So, they're home, and and the Goblet arrives, along with the Sinister Six, so Iceman and the Human Torch hold them off for a little bit while Peter Parker arrives, and starts to take them all on. And he's trying to bluff that he is okay, that he hasn't just been shot. And they kind of catch on to the bluff, and they kind of proceed to just brawl with him. And the Green Goblin shows up. And the Green Goblin in this, in the Ultimate Universe, is not just a nerd in an elf costume. He is a actual giant demon goblin, breathing like hellfire. So he's a big, big intimidating force. He's, I think they kind of compare him to the Hulk a couple times in here, and I think throughout the run they also say that he's kind of comparable to the Hulk. Just to give an example. And proceeds to just fight. Like, him and Spider-Man are just kind of brawling, and Spider-Man is running out of steam. At one point, Aunt May turned around instead of leaving and shot... Um, I don't think it was the Green Goblin. I think it was just another one of the villains. It was Electro, if I remember. Yeah. So she's there. So she's seen this whole beatdown. And the Green Goblin starts to threaten, not just, obviously not just Peter Parker, but he starts to threaten that he's going to 
kill everybody that's there, specifically like his family. And so Peter Parker uh, hits him with a truck, lifts up a truck and beats the crap out of him and uh, dies from like bleeding out uh, as like this whole thing is happening. Every The whole neighborhood is there. They're, t- they're recording him. His friends, his family are there. They're watching this happen. He's running out of steam. He's not had medical help. And he has just beat down what at this point is still like a healthy, fairly prime goblin while he is on his last ropes. And kind of hits him with this truck until like the, the semi blows up on top of the goblin. Knocking back Peter Parker, kind of taking out the last wind. Aunt May uh, goes to hold him, and Peter is, uh, through all this, is happy because he was finally able to do the one thing that he felt he would not be able to do, and tells Aunt May with a, with a little smile that he was able to save her. He was able to do for her what he couldn't do for Uncle Ben, and passes away in her arms. And we get a close-up on the Green Goblin, who is dead or dying at this point and kind of a little smile comes across his face kind of yeah the implication is he's not dead right no i think at this point the implication was that he he was happy because he feels like he won oh i got that he was like he died knowing at least peter parker was dead too yeah exactly But, but they could easily you know go either direction with that well they did later, which was terrible. Um, <laughs> they did, and it was bad. It was bad. Oh. Yeah, it, it, granted, it took them like seven or eight years to like reverse that decision. But like in the in later comics, they did a thing where they found out that I think they called the Oz formula that's in the spiders that like Osborne was researching and stuff that he injected himself directly actually gives them immortality. So Peter Parker's alive and the Green Goblin's alive. Huh. It's Wait, Peter Parker is alive? Ultimate Peter Parker is alive. Or was before the Secret War stuff. I was going to say, there's no more Ultimate Universe, so... Yeah, but like, it's... Uh, I mean, we're not really here to talk about that, but if, if we are talking uh, about it, it, it was one of those decisions that was universally not liked. Um, well, I, it, yeah, it makes this story worse. Yeah, uh, a yeah. lot of people were speculating that it was going to be a. Cl- no, I don't think speculating. I think people were hoping, praying, and wishing that it was just going to be another clone because they did have like a mini clone saga. Because of course you do, in the ultimate stuff. So I think people were hoping it was going to be, like another clone, or it was going to be an alternate timeline thing or multiverse thing or whatever. But they hard confirmed it was the Peter Parker that dies in here, did not actually die. And has just kind of been a piece of crap hiding away from his friends and family. And the only reason he shows up is because he wants his web shooters back. Uh, I feel yeah. like you're going to have to read that at some point and put it at the bottom of the list. Yeah, it's uh, such a... Because it's at the bottom. Okay, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's actually talk about this this book. What, what did you guys think about Ultimate Comics Spider-Man 156 or 160? The Death of Spider-Man made me sad because i was like surely like he's 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 dead like because i know i know that he dies i know that he dies and it's like fine but that was like 
kind of an abstract thing because I'd never read this before. And I was like, oh man, the whole Sinister Six and he's shot already. And, um, you know, the Green Goblin isn't just like flying around being, he's like a demon. So I was like this, yeah, the odds are not good here. Um, yeah, it, it actually, I, I feel like I, you know, experienced it as opposed to just like, oh yeah, this is a thing they did a while back, you know. I read this book once in a Barnes & Noble. And it really hit me then. It didn't hit me quite as hard this time, especially not at the beginning, because I got too distracted by the fact that Ultimate Captain America is just a jerk. Just kind of the yeah. worst guy. But yeah. um, the stuff that does work, which is all of the Parker actions, everything Peter Parker does in this story, kind of you know continuously confirms that he is a hero he is gonna do his best to you know save everyone and the way he keeps getting up after getting shot after getting electrocuted after getting thrown across the the city and blown up really makes johnny storm look like a lightweight yeah who gets knocked out like yeah he gets once. punched once and it's over for him yeah I, I have to agree, when I first read this book, and I think it might just be to the exposure, and kind of having had, I don't know, when did this book come out? This was in 2011. Having had, you know, 12 years of talking about this book, reading this book, and all that stuff, uh, this read wasn't as impactful, which isn't to say that I thought it, any less of it, other than Captain America, which in recent years has kind of come up to be... Ultimate Captain... A lot of Ultimate characters are just the worst version of their characters. Yep. Yeah. That's, like, pretty consistent. Um, oh. Which Thor is it? Is he, like, the unworthy one that's in the Ultimate no. Universe? No? That's, uh, like, a different one? Okay. Unworthy Thor is a different thing. Is is Miles Morales the only, like, through and through, like, good persons and, and good character? Yeah. Yeah, this Peter Parker. Peter Parker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so far, so far, Ultimate Thor is okay. We haven't seen him in in this story, but every version of Ultimate Thor we've read so far, I think, has been fine. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So I don't think it was as impactful. But I do remember reading the trade for the very first time because I wasn't really picking up comics at this point in time. I don't think. I think I started picking them up. Right after this ended, and I think it's because of this that I started wanting to pick up comics because I didn't want to wait. And I remember reading that trade for the first time after I had just been reading through all of Ultimate Spider-Man uh, through trades and checking them out from the library. And just like sobbing, just crying. Because um, like that final fight where he's fighting the Goblin, where he's fighting everybody at the time, just felt so excruciatingly long. And I think in a sense, it still feels long. I don't know how it felt to you, John, as like a first-time reader, but like, for at least for me, my first time, I was just like, how much How much more can he... I mean, I know he's gonna die. It's the death of Spider-Man, but like, I, I just... Uh, like, at the time, I was just like, this is, you know, this is kind of excruciating to watch, and then he dies, and... um. That whole little thing about him 
saving Aunt May at the time, like, hit just really, really hard. Even nowadays, yeah. I'm more on the bandwagon that we should have just let Aunt May die, like, years ago. But, so maybe that has to do something with lessening the impact. <laughs> That's, I mean, as, like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Narratively, I can see why she's necessary. Um, and how that kind of gives him, you know, grounds him and keeps him from just running off. And, you know, because he's more powerful than he really lets on, as we learn from Superior Spider-Man, right? But, yeah, he should, like, just, he should have just, like, gone off and been like, sorry, Aunt May, you're on your own. Um, I gotta leave so you don't get beat up, but I, you know, whatever. I don't know. I just, yeah, when, like, when she gets shot and they, and he has to make a deal with the devil, um, to, uh, trade his marriage for his, his elderly aunt, it's like, ah, come on, I die. But, you know, yeah. he carries everything and you know wears everything on his sleeve so he wouldn't he would just never be happy again even if he was married and got to stay with MJ and blah 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 so one more day is so representative of everything wrong with like Spider-Man comics today mm-hmm. because you could have let her go and have that be a very impactful moment and the Aunt May role of like his I guess conscience or his his you know morality which I don't really think Spider-Man should have to struggle with morality much at this point but if you needed to have that happen you could totally do that through i don't know a family he has through i don't know a marriage that he had that didn't get traded away for peanuts (laughs) but (laughs) man god i had so many uh, the current run oh i'm so angry anyways (laughs) this this particular story though the thing that makes it work there's there's a bit of clunkiness to it there is a lot of what the crap superheroes you know everybody yeah. just leaves spider-man for dead i know that they're busy with other stuff technically um i'm pretty sure that they're all being horrified at the blob eating the wasp or giant man eating the blob in reciprocation it's uh, ultimatum is just such a an awful event but well, Stephen, like, they might not have a choice even though it seems like they did because ultimately all they had was an ultimatum <laughs> but like the thing that gets me the thing that always gets me is superheroes saving people and that's what this book is Spider-Man takes a bullet for the one version of Captain America who does not deserve to have a bullet taken for him. Mm. Well, I guess there's there's Secret Empire Cap. Um, <laughs> so one of the only versions. And then he refuses to stay down when his neighbors are in danger, when his friends are in danger. He, But at the same time, he's asking for help the whole time. He's He's vulnerable, but he's not it's not mean. I think that's the thing that really gets me about it is there's all of this horrible stuff that happens to to Spider-Man. He gets shot, he gets electrocuted, I you know, the whole laundry list. And it's definitely putting him through a lot of punishment and throughout it he's asking for help. He he begs Johnny Storm to wake up so that he can attack the Green Goblin and and kind of buy him some time. He gets unmasked and his neighbors are recording and he asks for help. But at the same time, it's it's never mean-spirited. 
Like, I think a lot of... So my wife and I just watched Infinity War again, and you know, everybody's favorite part of Infinity War is after Thanos completes his mission and snaps his fingers, you have Spider-Man literally begging for his life. You know, that thing that we all like to see superheroes do. Sorry, Infinity War makes me so mad. I think that movie is garbage. (laughs) Because you... Not to get off on the tangent of Infinity War. When the heroes are down... They get up again? Yes, you're never going to keep them down. He's a kid! And they, like, it's it's supposed to be a weight on Tony. Yes, I know. Realistically, that's what would happen. But you know what? I don't watch superhero movies for the realism. I watch it for the escapism. I watch it for the fantasy. Mm-hmm. And in no version of my superhero fantasy is the hero begging for his life. I Like, I'm sorry. Everyone acts like they're in a video game and they can instantly recall all the resources that they have at their disposal and they're never going to make a mistake because they have the wherewithal and the extra time to think and plan and pit pause and do that kind of thing. It has to be a narrative, Stephen. It has to have stakes and it has to have uh, you know emotional buy-in from the audience. And when you kill Spider-Man, Again? everyone's like, let's kill Thanos. Here's, here's the thing. This story, Death of Spider-Man has stakes and the hero acts heroically even though the stakes are high even though the odds are against him and even though ultimately he loses this is how you do a superhero death yeah because i think to kind of steven's point and to kind of illustrate this you don't have this peter parker to the spider-man you know in his final breath being like i don't feel so good at me (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to improv a line because nobody else gets to. But and so, so I think that's kind of the thing, right? It's like you don't have that little moment because in here, in his final breath here, he's talking about that he did his job as a superhero or even not even as a superhero, just as somebody who wanted to protect a very specific person. Yeah. And the, the reason that Miles Morales' story works so well that that first origin part of it is because miles draws his inspiration from not being able to save peter right peter in his last moments not only does he get to save aunt may but he also gets to be uncle ben for someone else like he teaches the lesson of power and responsibility to miles uh, like indirectly But he's also, again, it's like he dies doing the hero thing. A couple of, I'm trying to think of superhero stories that get the death of the hero right. Um, Crisis on Infinite Earths actually manages it twice. It's kind of a, not a very good story, but the death of Supergirl and Barry Allen Flash. They're both really good because it's the heroes recognizing that they have impossible odds and getting up and fighting anyway. Maybe it's just an result of when I was born and when I started reading comics, but the way that Superman's death is handled in the death of Superman, I think is pretty good. And it's the same thing. It's he knows the stakes are high. He knows he can't win. He knows no one else can do it. So he's going to keep trying. And that sort of fortitude is what I go to superhero stories for. 
And it doesn't mean that they always have to win. And it doesn't mean that you can't deconstruct it occasionally, right? It's okay to have the occasional story where superheroes are sad and where superheroes are killed off tragically without, you know, where they panic and fear and all of that. But that shouldn't be your main story. And it's not here. I'm, I'm really trying not to turn this into a rant about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> we're, we're about a third of the way through Endgame now, and I'm we're, so mad. We're, I mean, we're failing. I have, I have problems. I have a lot of problems <laughs> with, with the MCU Spider-Man. <laughs> and it's none of it to do with Tom Holland himself, a personally. <laughs> I like Tom Holland. I think he does a great job. He's the best kid version of spider-man he actually makes spider-man feel like a kid better than anyone else even though i think andrew garfield was good at that too literally that was my only complaint about tom holland spider-man is that he improvised the i don't feel so good mr stark line because it didn't really match with the way literally everybody else died like he got to have his little special tearjerker like everybody loves him everybody's gonna cry let's make him cry harder like i don't know i just I've never yes. Oh, it was it felt so unnecessary and it felt so self serving and I hate it. (laughs) It's manipulative. I rolled my eyes in the theater. (laughs) He's like, I don't feel so. I was like, ugh, you ruined it for me. Thank you. (laughs) Anyway, sorry, (laughs) sorry. I just hate that moment. Tonight on things that John was okay with and now will be judged forever for. <laughs> you can like it's fine. I mean, if it hits I do like emotion- it. I if do it hits like you it. emotionally, that just means it didn't. It its job. did. That's fine. It yeah. did. The movie built to an excellent moment, and that was it. And and shut up. <laughs> Cap lost Bucky again. Oh, for the third time. Yeah. Really, really trying hard not to turn this into a. a diatribe about the marvel cinematic universe you know what moment was great in <laughs> death of spider-man it was great when mary jane hit the goblin with a truck and yeah. then peter parker picked up said truck and hit him with it again listen if i if it wasn't because i was reading a book about a, like a 16 year old boy with the proportional strength of a spider part of me would be like she doesn't know how to drive a a semi those things are complicated she didn't even unhook the fifth wheel what the heck (laughs) but I am reading a book I am reading a book about a a, a 16 year old with a proportional strength of a spider who dresses in a webbed costume so I didn't let that ruin it for me (laughs) I've been okay with whatever shenanigans are presented to me as long as they kind of fit within the universe since you know for 30 years now because there was a movie where a little boy got shocked by a fence that was meant to repel dinosaurs and he lived so i'm okay with whatever as long as you follow the rules that you make and it works within the story yeah 30 years man it's whoo yeah i meant meant the gay thing i i've made peace with the 30 years of a lot of movies It's really rough when it's like, oh, 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 no, that much time has passed since that movie came out. Oh, no. And then, you know, like in uh, Temple or um, Last Crusade, when he drinks from the wrong cup, he chooses unwisely or poorly. Rather, that's the line. And he like ages rapidly within like seconds. You know, that's how I feel like whenever I do the math on how long it's been since a particular movie came out. Yeah. So Spider-Man. I, I've, I'm, 
it was sad. It hit me. It, it, it worked for me. Um, uh, I like that he like went down swinging, that he went down like saving Aunt May in a way. I don't know. It's just sad, guys. <laughs> it was yeah. sad. I was like, I didn't I want to see this. And, and it yeah. sucks that, like, you know, the the uh, the Ultimates and, and you know, uh, Captain America didn't realize, like, hey, we should help this kid out. He's got a lot of heat on him right now. And, yeah, it's just a bunch of crap. So, yeah, I think something that I think is I, I don't know. I, I don't think I've ever would have been able to verbalize it until today that Stephen actually verbalized it. That's probably the word I was Aha. looking for earlier was that in his final moments, in his big last fight, right, he is being the most Spider-Man that you can be. He is injured. He is, for the most part, alone. He's getting some help, but it's not a whole lot. But he's protecting people, and he's kind of just not giving into the fight, and he's cracking jokes still even though he has been beaten absolutely to hell and is tired and is bleeding. And he's just being like the most Spider-Man that he has ever Spider-Man. And I think that's part of why it does well. And now that I'm like thinking about this and I'm thinking about how much I'm not a fan of like Joe Quesada and a lot of the editorial decisions that he made uh, again to like Spider-Man one more day and a lot of stuff kind of, before and after that, I did not realize that the one of the editors for this book is Sana Amanat. I noticed that too this time. Like, and yeah, I feel like that tracks. <laughs> right? right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it was kind of one of those things that I don't know. Maybe it's I, well, it's, I don't, it's not really. It's one of those things, and it's not maybe because of the podcast. It absolutely is because of this podcast that I've started paying more attention to, like, editors. And there are a lot of decisions that I'm seeing, like, a through line between certain editors nowadays. And, like, Asana Amina has, like, that through line of kind of... I don't know how to say it. Like, I don't want to say, like, respectful superheroes, like, struggling. (laughs) But I think as an editor, she kind of gets that. And I don't know how much involvement as an editor she has in here. But like, it kind of makes sense what, with what she's been doing with this. And then like also a lot of the stuff that she was doing with the current Miss Marvel stuff. Whereas like Joe Quesada stuff, especially with some of the Spider-Man stuff really felt like vindictive. Like he didn't get to have his way. And so now he's forcing it. And he gets the Spider-Man that he wants, regardless of what anybody else says. And so that's why Boy, we I feel up. like that's a lot of that's a lot of the story of the editors at Marvel Comics, from yeah. my understanding of the history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like that happens a lot. Yeah. So so I don't know. I thought that was just kind of an interesting, like meta narrative that I hadn't noticed, and I probably wouldn't have if it hadn't been for like you know us talking about editors when we do. So. Uh, like I say, I don't think the story hit me quite as much as it did the first time I read it. And I think a lot of it is just because it is a bit long for what is ultimately just a scrap with the Sinister, the sinister Six outside of Spider-Man's house. It's a very straightforward story. There's not a lot of depth to it that 
doesn't mean that it's bad though like like john i got a little misty at the end i i think that you know spider-man gets his his last words it is a little bit corny i know but you know he he does the hero thing he saves people he gets to feel like he saved people he gets to feel good about his job as spider-man he did the thing and he feels good about it. it's just now hitting me how rare that is for parker right yeah he's supposed to like he win but be sad about it yeah he actually gets to win and feel good about it and it, you know it's he's dead but yeah it's uh, ultimately short-lived uh-huh. oh <laughs> just like peter <laughs> but yeah i don't think i have anything else to say about the story i think it's pretty good yeah, I don't yeah. think there's a lot to say. I, I think, like, all things considered, I think this book is kind of doing a lot right, kind of from beginning to end. I don't think there's a lot to critique, at least from my end. I've, I don't really have, like, a lot of things where I was like, oh, this doesn't make sense, this doesn't really match the character, so on and so forth. And I was trying to, like, read this a little bit more critically this time. Because every time I read it, I've just been like, hey, I want to cry a little bit. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't think it's firing on all cylinders all the time, like we have some of our other books. But I think what it executed here, it did it skillfully. Is that our cue to move on? Uh, I, I, I thought so. I, I thought that felt like a very good like punctuation mark. <laughs> all right. Uh, continuing with Ultimate Spider-Man, sort of, we are going to read, or we're going to talk about the Miles Morales series written by Saladin Ahmed. Yes, the artist was Javier Garon, uh, colorist David Curiel, VC's Corey Pettit was the letterer. Um, I want to make sure I made a point of looking through and making sure that the creative team was the same the whole time. Marco D'Alfonso did the covers and I think did a great job. Um, that looks like it's... They do change toward the end. Saladin Ahmed and Javier Garon are story credited as storytellers. So it looks like they, they you know, are working together more, um, you know, coming up with, with things. I like that. When you know writers and artists come together, they're just like, no, this is this is both of us. It's not just like, I do the words, you do the pictures. It's you know, um, more collaborative. Um, this follows Miles Morales. We see him at Brooklyn Academy. His uncle is uh, the supervillain Iron Spider. Um, he is. Um, his parents know that he's Spider Man. His uh, roommate, um, Ganke. I don't know how to pronounce his name. That I, now that I'm looking at this. And reading I've it always aloud. just called them. I've always just called them gang, uh, like Genki. Genki, Genki Lee. Yeah. So he he has two roommates: Judge, who's a poet, and Genki, who's like his man in the chair. Which they, you know, I know. Um, although you don't like what they did in the movies for that, but like, I hate it. Yeah, he's like his his te- his tech support, but um, he uh, he's in on it, and he has a kind of girlfriend, Barbara, kind of girlfriend sort of, who, like, knows that something's up with him and keeps trying to get him to, like, open up and tell him stuff. And um, they uh, go out on a little date, and he meets her um, cousin, uh, Eduardo, 
um, who it turns out gets wrapped up in um, super super villain shenanigans. Um, there is a villain who um, can possess and like kind of kind of mind control people and uh miles as he's noticing oh shoot this is eduardo runs into uh rhino and the two of them uh fight and then team up because they're both you know on the level looking after you know these kids that have been abducted and um they um work on tracking them down captain america is gets involved as well and realizes okay there's no standing warrants on the rhino we can we can you know trust that he's just you know, in it for for good reasons and not like helping out um, you know, the supervillains here. As they're investigating, they see that uh, Tombstone is involved, popular um, gangster in Spider-Man comics and other you know New York themed heroes, which is a lot of them. Um, and there's a uh, Tombstone is you know using this guy to um, get the edge and kind of take over in Brooklyn. There are other mobs that are fighting over it. And ultimately, um, he's able to defeat this guy. I forget his the uh, villain who can take over. They called him the Snatcher. Yes, you could call me the Snatcher. Um, I he doesn't like he doesn't name at all. Nope, nope. <laughs> not great. <laughs> um, he um, not only is a bad guy, but he is a bad guy. Um, and they said, you know who I snatch from? Scum that sleep on our streets, dirt that ignores our borders, garbage that fills their veins with poison. So this guy sucks. Um, and uh, he briefly controls Cap and Rhino and um, Miles, but Miles snaps out of it, and so he's able to um, take him down with his uh, Venom Blast, and then... They play off Cap that he's he is an old man who can't use his phone, which kind of bugs me because Chris Evans never had a problem with the phone. But we get a Ferris Bueller issue in issue four, which I shared with you all because um, they they pay homage to it and like direct like you know shots and everything. We get a vice principal who's you know arguing with his secretary about some this punk kid you know, and he wants to catch him at it. And uh, they're trying to go see, you know, a history of hip-hop in Brooklyn, and there are shots that are directed out of Ferris Bueller. Ferris Bueller is, like, one of my favorite movies of all time. Like, Gun to My Head, it might be my Desert Island movie that uh, I, you know, pick that movie above others. Um, but uh, seeing it here, like, played out, you know, same kind of story beats and everything was just a delight for me. Um, that issue, um, we still see... Oh, they have a skirmish with uh, a ice-powered white boy pharaoh um the frost pharaoh yeah that's that's ridiculous um he's able to get back in time and uh not get caught by the the uh dean and um uh the fifth issue that we read tombstone is still working on taking over brooklyn and he meets uh starling a um i thought she was like somehow connected to the falcon because of the red the red um flying like she has red feathers and everything and it's kind of like similar aesthetic but she is actually from detroit and the granddaughter of adrian tombs the vulture so she can fly and has similar powers like that and uh, can you know 
take a take a big hit because she gets shot a couple of times, and there's kind of a you know flirty banter with them, but she's a bit more brutal than uh, Miles is and seems a little older, and he's you know very quickly like she realizes oh you're a kid, um, so that's introduced, and so um, that's all we read, correct? Yeah, yeah. Hits off at the end to to confront Aaron. Yeah, he's still digging into Tombstone and then needs to, you know, talk to Uncle Aaron about what's going on and, um, you know, how he can deal with that problem in Brooklyn. But um, I I loved this. This was great. Um, this is one where I'm like, oh, shoot, I need to read this one. Um, I This came out about the same time as the movie, right? The um, Spider-Verse movie. Um, I think it was a little bit later. A little bit later? If I'm remembering correctly, yeah. Okay. Because sometimes they do a good job of, like, connecting, you know, using the source material in the comics, and then the line gets blurred when they nail it in the movie, and then they'll add a little something that later influences how they take the same comic series that influenced the movie going forward. You know, costuming choices, you see that a lot, and, you know, how they portray different... Um, characters to have them look just like their uh, actor counterparts but you know whether whether the movie influenced the book the book influenced the movie whatever i i enjoyed it um and you know spider-verse is my favorite spider-man movie so yeah we've talked a couple times on the podcast about like representation and i think we talk about that quite a bit when we talk about miss marvel Mm -hmm. and i gotta say one of the things i loved about this book was the discussions and the humanity of like undocumented immigrants living in the United States mm-hmm. and like, yes. the very real dangers and situations that they often can find themselves in. And for me, as somebody who was yeah, kind of still am, an undocumented immigrant, I have uh, DACA uh, protections. So I'm solid every two years. Um, <laughs> But it is something kind of nice to see. And I I wonder how this book hits to the younger generation who are kind of in the same or similar situation that I'm in. Uh, Because at least for me, and I I hate the term because it gets so used on Twitter and online, but I felt like seen. (laughs) <laughs> and it, obviously, yeah. like nowadays, it doesn't feel like as impactful. I feel like if I'd have read this book ten years ago, it would have been a little bit more impactful, and maybe would have switched me, or would have started the switch from Peter Parker to Miles Morales being my favorite Spider-Man. And I thought that was well written. Boy, I'm gonna feel bad now. <laughs> I mean, critique it anyways. That's <laughs> good intentions don't overshadow bad execution or bad deals. I guess <laughs> I wouldn't. I would not say that the execution here is bad. Uh, nor do I think this is a bad story. I just think that this is not the strongest story that we have ever read from uh, Mr. Ahmed. No, not at all. Big frustration that I have with this story is that this does not feel like a story that has to be told from Miles' perspective. This could have been a Peter Parker story in any of the various, you know, 
high school retellings of Peter Parker Spider-Man. There's very little here that distinguishes it from one of those stories. The cultural aspect is probably the strongest one where Miles as a person from a marginalized group in the United States sees what is happening to other marginalized people like him and reacts to that where the rhino talks about feeling marginalized because of his criminal status and because he is, you know, a giant man in a concrete rhinoceros costume and Miles finding that as weirdly this this point of commonality. Like those things kind of work, but gang wars and you know, seeing the best in the supervillain like with the rhino. I don't know. Other than Miles culture, the thing that really distinguishes him from Peter is the fact that he has his family. Mm-hmm. He has his parents. He has his uncle. And so to see Miles make the same decisions that Peter does is a little disappointing. Yeah. I think, sorry, to kind of review a little bit on your first point, I think narratively you're right. This doesn't need to be a Miles book because we have seen and we do know that Spider-Man, you know, doesn't discriminate. He's friendly with the neighborhood, regardless of like what neighborhood you put him in. He bonds with the people. He is a member of that community, just like Miles is in this is in this case. I think for me, the rebuttal on that would be that the meta narrative of having a white savior yet again saving a neighborhood of you know marginalized minority groups is maybe getting old and having you know what that's fair yeah and having miles morales be not just a member of you know visually a member of that community but also how ingrained he is in that community i think does quite a bit of of legwork yeah, that, that that's a hundred percent a fair point. Yeah, take that white man. <laughs> <laughs> Tell him all though. Stephen Whiteman. <laughs> Stephen Whiteman. <laughs> uh on your on, on the other point, um yeah, I still I don't I don't disagree. <laughs> There's I think the other thing that's frustrating about this is we've seen Saladin Ahmed do the the sympathetic take on the supervillain. He did that in Black Bolt with, uh, I think it was Absorbing Man, and it was really good and really compelling. Oh yeah, with Creel. I like. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like that he does that again here with the Rhino, and I wanted more of it. Yeah, uh, there's some there's some there's so many good Rhino moments when he like charges past Tombstone and bounces off the the webbing and does like a wrestling move. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was so good. I also really like the moment where the rhino is about to just bust into the, the factory or the warehouse. And Miles tells him to let him sneak in first. He's like, yeah, well, we don't want to alert them. And he's like, and you can see that the rhino's visibly frustrated, right? Like he wants to help. I, you know, not like out of entirely goodness, right? Obviously, he's in it to save his niece. But he gets frustrated, right? Like, he's like, all I can do is like smash things and run into things. And yeah, you're, you're right. I have to 
you know, I should let you do this and kind of, you know, compromises with him. And it's like, all right, if I don't hear from you in five minutes, I'm charging in Rhino style. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of really good character moments for Rhino, I think, in here. Art is really good. Uh, there's there's one panel of the Rhino just smashing his fist into Miles that just felt good. I looked at it, and it's just got the speed lines in the right place and the right colors. It's got this big thwomp sound effect. It's very kind of straightforward superhero stuff, but dang if it didn't like feel good to read that. Yeah. I think another, like, sorry, another. I was thinking about this because you mentioned the whole thing about him making the same mistakes that Peter makes, right? Uh, I think one of the things I don't like about Miles in this book is that he kind of feels just a little bit like a, like, I don't know another way to put it. He feels a little bit like a horn dog. Like, he's very, like, into this girl, right? But the moment, like, the same day that he kind of sort of breaks up with her. And he sees this other girl. I forgot what her name was. The the vulture's granddaughter, Starling. Starling. The moment he meets Starling, Starling, he's like, he's like, "Hey, yo, she fine, and she in a costume. Let's go." Um, and it's like, all right, listen, I've had to deal with like forty years of this with like Peter Parker and Mary Jane and Black Cat. I don't, I don't need this again. <laughs> right. I think I think it would have been interesting to actually have him kind of confess to to the girl. And maybe he does later. We don't we don't know that, right? We only read like the first five six issues. But I think it would be interesting because by the time Peter Parker did kind of reveal his identity, they were like adults. They were, you know, in a pretty defined relationship. So I think seeing that kind of similar thing of a confession when he's a teenager and not necessarily in that long of a relationship, I think would be interesting to see what happens out of that because teenage yeah. love is fickle. Yep. I'd, I'd like to see him, you know, involved with a uh, supervillain, you know, somehow that'd be interesting. Like, uh-oh. You mean like Black um, Cat and Peter Parker? <laughs> <laughs> no, but like actually involved. Not like a will they won't like, they will they won't they won't they won't they won't they come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Would you have them know? Or would you have them like not know that they are I guess anyway. You'd have to you'd have to have them know at some point. So I think it's you really plan out because a lot of times you know, once the once the will they won't they couple get together, then it becomes boring. Or once they find out, then it's like, well, how can we even keep going on or whatever? There'd have to be some way to to make it make the relationship like like they just really want to be together. So mm-hmm. you know, but it, it ultimately they can't because there's going to be a line that one of them crosses that the other one. You know, like he he turns her in for being a villain, or she does something that he can't you know look past. So yeah, doomed. But you know, yeah. it's, John, would it yeah. would it surprise you to know that I know of an anime that does that premise? <laughs> oh, for crying out loud! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
You just you just let me keep going, and you're like, yes, yes, take the bait. Take the bait, swallow it whole. Yes, you'll already be in my net before you realize you've been caught. Piece of crap. Well, yeah, can you... Do, do tell. It's just called, like, Love Before World Domination, and it's like a Power Rangers thing where, like, the Red Ranger leader character is in love with like one of the generals of like the evil army. And so they, he asks her out and they date in secret and they do dumb things. Like they'll get like in a struggle, right? Like, like she'll go to punch him and he'll grab her hand and they'll have like this little moment where they're like, Oh my gosh, we're holding hands. This is great. And then he has to like judo throw her to the ground. Cause he can't let anybody know that they're, they got a thing going. That's, that's pretty good. Yeah, there's moments where he has to like sneak into the enemy base just to hang out with his girlfriend. <laughs> I've seen the costume. It's bad. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. Yeah, but I, the show, the premise of the show sounds really cute. Mm-hmm. But yeah, anyways, we're not here to talk about that. <laughs> no, I think we're here to rank some stories. Do we have anything else to say about this particular comic? Excellent art. Um, yes. I- Critiques aside, I really enjoyed it, and um, it worked for me, and it, I don't know, it felt like it was, the the issues brought up there, it's like, good, I'm glad that, like, comics are going, you know, over this, because he, it, you know, there's only so much you can do in costume, right? So there, there needs yeah. to be, like, how are we going to deal with, you know, real, real problems that affect people that, you know, you can't just punch your way out of, or whatever, so. Yeah. I I do also really like we were talking about that dynamic that he has his family right and at this point his family knows that he is Spider-Man his dad was a shield agent at some point we he mentions that briefly in the beginning and I I don't know I kind of would have liked to see him talk to his dad like he has like a resource I wish I that's I think my only complaint is and maybe, again, we don't know, maybe that gets addressed later, but it feels like if you have a dad who was a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, wouldn't you want to talk to him about these types of things? Like, wouldn't you want to be, hey, hey, dad, you know, there's these kidnappings going on, there's this stuff going on. You know, what? what's like, what's the safe thing to do? Like, how can I help these people without making it worse? Or, or something like that, right? Like, you have a... Like, not just a moral compass resource. You have, like, a practical source of knowledge. So, I, I, I don't know. I think that's one of my very few, like, nitpicks. But uh-huh. That's almost like the criticism I made. Yeah. <laughs> like, sorry. Miles lives away from his parents. Practically speaking, they are not a part of most of his stories. Like, mm-hmm. he had the little phone call with his dad at the beginning... And that's it, really. And that was about stuff that happened in another story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, yeah, 100% down with this critique. Yeah. And I think, I mean, all things considered, that's, I think, a fair critique, and but also not something that's like, I don't know, that critique doesn't necessarily ruin the It doesn't break it. Yeah. It does not break the story. No, not at all. Yeah, I don't have anything else to add. Okay. Should we should we should we do the ranking thing then? Yeah, we have some very very high and very well, the lowest 
Spider-Man stories on the ranking. So, boy, yes, Spider-Man is just all over the place here. So the list currently has 237 stories. And the lowest ranking, like John said, is The Evil That Men Do by Kevin Smith and Terry Dodson. Not necessarily a value judgment on on those creators, but holy crap, guys. I mean, it's a little bit of a value thing on Kevin Smith. (laughs) It's a little bit of a value thing. I like Kevin Smith. But, boy, is he not great at scripts. He's great at telling stories. He's not great at writing them. Meanwhile, our top ten has multiple Spider-Man stories, including number ten itself being the first story arc of Miles Morales. So, you know, a lot of space to go. Let's start with the death of Spider-Man. Here's the thing. Having just reread it, I don't think it breaks the top 10. I actually originally kind of thought it might. I thought so too, but originally. I, yeah, I, I don't think it's quite that good. I do think it's good. I think it's worth reading, but it's more worth reading for what I think is a single strong emotional moment. Yeah. And I'm having a hard time thinking of a comparable story uh, the only thing that I can really think of is the Dark Phoenix saga, which the ending to that is so, you know, it's so good. But I don't know that, I don't know. I don't think this has the same level of, of import, right? I mean, it did for a while. Yeah. It did for a while. There was a, there was Sorry, a knowing long... Knowing that Peter Parker comes back, that that really grates my cheese. Yeah. Ugh. There was there was a time, and I, I don't know, we're maybe still in a time, but there was a time when like every top ten Spider-Man comics you should read list had this in there, and you know for a while it was it was such a big moment because I mean sure they killed off other characters but like to kill off Spider-Man and that laid down the foundation for Miles Morales. It's I don't know. I I would argue that it's still fairly like culturally important, but like with the death of the Ultimate Universe, the revival of Peter Parker in the Ultimate Universe, it kind of diminishes a little bit of it, but I don't know that it does that by how much. I'm I'm looking that kind of emotional moment where that's kind of the key of the story where the rest of it may not be the best, but they really nail that moment. That reminded me of the never ending struggle. The, um, the Deadpool comic we read where he literally talks a woman off the ledge and gets her the help that she needs. Yeah. Yeah. I like that comparison. And that's kind of the neighborhood where I was thinking, where is that? What number is that? That is, Number 47. 47, yeah. That gives us a good floor, though. I agree that this is probably a little better than that. Mm -hmm. Um, I probably... I'm trying to figure out where my ceiling is. I think J. Jonah Jameson life story is my ceiling. Because that's a a strong narrative throughout. Yeah. Another Spider-Man. I was going to say my ceiling was absolute carnage. I would not put this above. Absolute carnage. Oh, I wouldn't either. But I actually don't think I'd put this above King in Black either. 
Yeah, I would put this above Kamala Khan gets a boyfriend. <laughs> That's just our name for it, right? That's not the official name. No, of the, the name train. is like no, it's called crushed. Okay. And then we added a colon. Kamala Khan. <laughs> it does help visually to reference, like, okay. Yeah. Um, See, yeah, looking at those, like, I would put it above, you know, like, Forget Me Not and Black Bolt and The Oath and everything. So that, uh, yeah. yeah. Man, I fold like a cheap suit when it comes to some of these, right? Like, oh, yeah, I could go way higher than I was originally planning. Remember that ceiling I mentioned? Let's just jump right over it. I don't, I don't think it's just you, John. I think we've had a lot of conversations where we have an initial thought and then somebody says something. And we're like, no, I think you're right. Except when John says it. Yeah. Typically. It's like, <laughs> right. Well, it's kind of like reframes. It kind of reframes. It's like, remember, you know, because we, I mean, we try to follow the same ranking convention, right? There are certain like, okay, if it's good but a little racist and hasn't aged well then it lives near the bottom <laughs> if it's downright offensive it's got to be below number like you know one 170 or something yeah so right. yeah i think i think for me at least the problem with this is i feel like it's a skillfully done book i for me this was a big part of like my comics reading this is the book that i think kind of got me back into or not back into it's still kind of the book that inspired me to start picking up single issues and stuff like that. Cause I, I remember vividly going to the comic book store and still seeing single issues of this on the shelf. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think so. I'm trying to like, you know, take my bias out a little bit, but what is this podcast? I've not our bias <laughs> because that's yeah, why civil we, war is so low. Like a third of each episode is, is just our biases on full display. Yeah, so like f- for me, I I would put this above, you know, crushed. But I personally, I would also put this much higher. I don't want to put this above crushed, and so I think putting it between crushed and king and black, <laughs> I would put that forward as a good compromise. I could love that compromise. Yep. Okay. And that puts this book in, I think, pretty good company. Oh, yeah. It's in the same general area as, you know, the first volume of Runaways, as the Heroes Reborn series that we... Oh, man. You remember how that ends with a council of 666 Mephistos? Whatever happened with that? We need to follow up on that. Uh, anyway, so that's our new number 35, Death of Spider-Man. From the ultimate universe. But not for long. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So. Miles Morales? Where do we want to rank this Miles Morales story? And I don't even know what to call it. Miles Morales number one. No, for real this time. It's really another number one that was really <laughs> confusing. Like trying to jump back in and get it. Um, the trade is called Straight Out of Brooklyn. I okay. hate it, but it works. <laughs> I do too. Another critique that I had, but I, I'm, I'm an old, so I don't know if this is actually a good critique. <laughs> a lot of the, the youthful dialogue felt like an old man writing youthful dialogue. But I don't actually know what the kids say. Maybe, you know, Ahmed's more in, in tune with uh, the hip lingo of the youth than I am. But it was... It was uh, I had the same critique when we talked about the champions a couple weeks back too anyway this story goes lower i can tell you where my immediate ceiling is 
What is your immediate uh, ceiling? My immediate ceiling is kind of in the same area that we were just looking. The uh, Black Bolt stories, I think those stories are better than this. So, oh, okay. The first one is definitely better. The second one is actually a little bit lower than I thought it was because we read the the Black Bolt 12-issue series and we ranked him as two stories. The second part is currently at number 109. So the second part? And I'm not... Yeah, the first part is significantly higher. Yeah, Black Bolt Hard Time. That's where all the really good stuff with the Absorbing Man is. That's at number 38. Okay, so that's our range. It's somewhere between those. <laughs> the Saladin Ahmed Corridor, as it will, I will call it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm inclined to put this higher than lower, because I, I, I don't know, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Yeah, I... I, str- I struggle because... For as much as... I mean, I have my little spiel about representation, right? But, um... But there is a lot about this book that kind of feels a little flat. Like, it's not like an amazing book. And granted, not every book has to be, right? This is also setting up a run. It's yeah. setting up villains, a recurring character, a kind of foil, like a moral foil to, to Miles through Starling. Like, it's doing a lot of really good setup. I think standalone as a, as a single book, it's kind of, I don't know, maybe a little flat, it, unimpressive. It's inessential. Yeah. So all that to say is that part of my ceiling would actually be like Strange Academy. Where's Strange Academy? What number is that at? 55. 56. 55. Cinco, cinco. Yeah, that's probably higher than I would go with this. Mm-hmm. I would put this around, and I want, I want this on record. I would put this around number 70 which is Riot at Xavier's, which is one of my favorite X-Men stories of all time. Oh. So I don't think that this is bad company. I just don't think that this is a must-read story. Maybe it shapes up to be one at some point later on in the run. But for now, I'm like, this is good. This is solid. You know, you'll pick this up. You'll have a good time. And then you'll put it down and move on. And I think that puts it in the same territory as things like this Gwenpool story at number 72 or the beginning of the Jane Foster Thor stuff at number 69. Nice. Nice. I, dang it. I thought we were going to get past that. No. Never. <laughs> I would put, you know what? I would concede to that a little bit, and I would put it right below right at Xavier's. Oh, hey, we're just compromising all over the place. Yeah, I'm looking at that, and that's not bad company. You know, Wolverine is there. Magic is there. Um... Oh, 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 it's yeah. magic. Though I am going to, on our, on our books to read later, um, I'm going to find out, you know, what uh, the next trade is. And, you know, we'll, we can read that one, revisit that in a year or so and be like, haha, more, more Miles Morales. And then we bump it up a little. But, yeah. Yeah. All right, so I think that puts it in at number 71 between Right at Xavier's and Angela Asgard's Assassin. Boy, that Angela book was actually surprisingly good, too, if I remember. Yeah, it, great art, book. if I recall, so that kind of yeah. sets it apart. I think that was a you problem. 
I don't remember how you do <laughs> We We tend... I think a lot of the time we have similar tastes in art, like the three of us. Every once in a while, though, like Truth, Red, White, and Black, me and Steven are like, oh, oh. my gosh, the art. What a great... What a divisive book. Yeah, and then John, you know... No. Just being like, oh, I don't like political comics. <laughs> no. <laughs> This is revisionist history. This is... <laughs> so, speaking of history, we're and going back it. in time and revisioning it. Uh, what? Uh, we're going to look at a couple of older stories. It's funny to say older stories about stories that definitely were written in my young adulthood. Uh, <sighs> we have. It's been a while since we've visited the cosmic corner of Marvel in any like real depth. And so we're going to read the six issue annihilation series from 2006. If I recall, this story was coming out at the same time as civil war. And it's the kind of birthplace of the current iteration of the guardians of the galaxy. Not that, not in tone, but in lineup. Like, this brings Drax back into the fold and uh, some other characters. If I'm remembering correctly, it's been years since I've read Annihilation. Watch, we read it, and it's, it has nothing to do with any of that. Drax is on the cover of the first issue, though, so I feel pretty confident in that. We're also going to read Extreme X-Men. This is the uh, first five issues of the 2012 series... Which, although you've mentioned a couple of times, I've never read this. I have no idea what it's about, but it's written by Greg Pak. So I think that puts it in a pretty good place to start with. Yeah. Alternate is, universe versions of the X-Men. Yeah, this is like a multiverse hopping adventure with a cast that tends to cycle. Like you have your core cast of like three or four. There's three on the cover of the first issue, which is... Emma Frost, Wolverine, and Nightcrawler, but I think the cast rotates pretty regularly as they visit different multiverses, and they're kind of on a hunt to find evil versions of Charles Xavier and eliminate them. Interesting. Because Professor X is a jerk. Mm -hmm. So, worthy worthy effort. I don't know. I, I occasionally will talk to my coworkers about geeky stuff, and they don't recognize the fact that Professor X is actually a villain. <laughs> he is. Yeah, he be a jerk. Him and Reed Richards, so I think it's easier to accept that Reed Richards is kind of a, a jerk. Yeah, I don't think anybody... I have yet to meet anyone who is like ride or die for Reed Richards. <laughs> there are people who like Professor X. Yeah. Babies, mostly, who haven't developed a sense of <laughs> right and wrong. 